0: You're listening to a selection of
1: stories from this week's Morning Ireland. They dare to dream that it could be coming home after 55 years. England has made it into the finals of Euro 2020. They'll face Italy on Sunday after beating Denmark at Wembley last night. Harry Kane dispatched a controversial penalty and extra time at the second attempt to put the three lions through. Our reporter, Killian Sherlock, was at the Living Room Bar in Dublin City where England fans were cheering their team on to victory. What a moment
2: for Kane and England, semi-final of the European Championship. Harry Kane against Kasper Schmeichel,
3: saves, scores! Football's coming home, football's coming home! <laughs> One, two, three, four, looking
0: back away we made it.
4: Whatever about football coming home, it is England who'll face Italy at Wembley on Sunday night, their first major tournament final in a long, long 55 years. And one man who was certainly enjoying the game last night is Paul Johnston, the UK ambassador to Ireland. Paul Johnston, good morning to you.
5: Good morning,
4: Anya. How are you? Well, I'm uh, doing very well and you're obviously (laughs) doing very well. I've been looking at your post-match analysis on Twitter. You conceded it wasn't the most beautiful of beautiful games. You said it was a great team victory despite Schmeichel's brilliance. And on that penalty, which everyone is asking about this morning, you wrote, the arc of history is long, but it bends like Beckham towards justice.
5: There you go. I mean, (laughs) I think... Uh, I'm not a big fan of the video assistant referee, I must say. Um, And the first time I saw um, the tackle, I did think that it was a penalty, but I can't disguise that sort of, you know, passionate excitement might have clouded my judgment. And then when you saw the multiple replays, from some it looked like a penalty, from some it looked less like a penalty. So I think the referee, having given the decision, it would have been a brave video assistant referee who overturned it. And I do think if it had been a boxing match, brilliant though Denmark were in lots of respects particularly their amazing goalkeeper I do think England were far far ahead on points and you deserve the overall victory.
4: Yeah Jose Mourinho said uh, he didn't think the referee would sleep well given that penalty decision but he also said it was a deserved win for England so you're at one with him on that.
5: Well I'm very happy to be at one with someone as distinguished as Jose Mourinho although I always thought he was very late to appreciate the underlying excellence of of Luke Shaw but um, I'm glad that uh, (laughs) I'm glad that in the end it all came out the right the right way.
4: Um, and so, uh, Sunday night, Italy, Wembley, I fifty-five know. long years, uh, and 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 this team as well, under the leadership of Gareth Southgate.
5: I do think that's the remarkable thing. I've talked to a lot of Irish people who've said to me, "You know, we could never imagine ourselves supporting the English national team in a tournament, um, much as we love you know the English Premiership teams." And I've always been. You know, amazed by how Irish people treat the Premiership as their own. I think that's fantastic, and you know, they, they go off to Manchester United, in Liverpool on a regular basis. But for reasons I completely understand, um, they've always had a sort of resistance, if you like, to the English national team. But I do think, and, and as a Scot, I must say, despite being a UK ambassador with my Scottish hat on, um, you know, I can sort of understand that. But I do think there's something about this team and about the way Gareth leads them, and about their individual you know humility. Many of them have been very active during the pandemic and before championing good causes. And I think he himself is a fantastic example of inclusive and respectful leadership. And his open letter on what his patriotism means to him, which is all about inclusivity and justice and togetherness. And when he gives an interview after the match, often his first thought is for the players who didn't play, who didn't even make it into the final squad for the day. And I just think he's an example of how to go about you know, leading a team mm-hmm. and, and representing your country. And I think that you know, he, he and his team have picked up a lot of followers, I suspect, around the world that you know, would not normally be perhaps that interested in football or the English football team because of, I think, the values they exemplify. And I think given the time we've all been through in all our countries over the last 15 months, the glorious distraction that is sport and this particular, I think, set of players and their leader, I think they've connected in a way mm-hmm. with people.
4: And d- just one final question, Paul Johnston. And obviously, we, we, we do hope that the best team, uh, with as neutral uh, a hat on as possible, we hope the best <laughs> team wins on Sunday. Uh, but just looking, and it was, you know, the scenes of joy, as you said in, in, at Wembley last night, that were amazing looking at, at the English crowds. And we've seen footage from all over the country. We'd a report mm-hmm. in our own programme earlier, people here who'd gathered to watch the match and celebrate. But at the same time, so many people across Ireland looking at that and thinking, COVID, Delta wave, how big a risk was that?
5: Well, I'm sure all the decisions were taken with the best medical scientific advice. Um, you know, we've got 80% of the population vaccinated, over 60% fully vaccinated. Um, so I think um, there was a conscious decision to go ahead, not just with the football, but with Wimbledon um, and with other sporting uh, occasions. And um, I think that, you know, the government judged that that was, the, that was the right thing to do. And, you know, had it not been for um, the decision the Irish authorities took, which I fully respect, you know, um, last week England would have been playing Germany at the, at the Aviva Stadium. But what we can look forward to, I think, with great excitement and optimism is the perspective of the UK and Ireland jointly bidding to host the World Cup in, in 2030, when hopefully COVID is just something that's in the, in the history books and we've all moved on.
4: And you never know, we might even have a team in that contest. All right, I'm thank you sure very you much. will. <laughs> not,
5: not just because you're a host nation either. I'm sure you'll be, um, you'll be right up there by 2030, and Scotland as well, and all the world. All nations. right.
4: All right. Well, appreciate you joining us this morning, uh, the morning after the night before Ambassador. That's Paul Johnston, the UK Ambassador to Ireland. And indeed, for the Italian fans among you who have heard quite enough of football's coming home, here's a reminder of the moment Italy secured their place in Sunday's final.
6: uh, This is the fifth penalty for Italy. Spain have missed two.
7: So if this goes in and it's Jorginho, the penalty king from Chelsea. The boy who came from Brazil at 15 was homesick. Didn't want to go back. And he's rolled it in. And Italy are in the final. That was as cool as you'll see. And
4: that was it. That was Italy securing their place in the final. And on the line now is somebody who, to whom that moment meant an awful lot. Ambassador Paolo Sarpi, Italian ambassador to Ireland. Good morning to you.
7: Hi, good morning. It's a pleasure to, to hear from you.
4: Do you think it's going to go to penalties again on Sunday night?
7: I hope not. <laughs> because <laughs> it, it is dramatic. I hope that we, we will finish in the 90 minutes. But you never know. I mean, the the players, as you have seen, they 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 are ready, and it is an important aspect of it that they 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 are recalling that they are just playing. That it. it is not, uh, you know, a, a fight. It is uh, they are playing. It's football. And I, I've liked it. in when in, in the match between uh, Italy and Spain, the last match, I mean, the the hug between the two goalkeepers, uh, and uh, the, the the way they were playing, the two captains be before the the supplementary uh, times. Uh, So, I mean, it it must be like this. Uh, We have to to recall that it is a play. And uh, I think the Italian team has it very well in mind. It is a fight, but it is a play.
4: And I know there's the 33-match unbeaten run uh, but Roberto Mancini pointing out Italy has won, you know, they haven't won anything yet and England are going to have an entire stadium behind them. How big an advantage will that be for them and how big a disadvantage for you?
7: Yes, I mean, we will have more or less 10,000 Italians in, uh, in in Wembley uh, and, uh, I mean, we, we have, as you know, a lot of Italians in, in the UK, people working, uh, studying, etc., and I think, if I'm not, not wrong, uh, more than 600,000. But in the stadium, there will be 10,000. And they will uh, certainly do their part. Uh, on the other hand, I think uh, certainly it is an advantage to, to play at home. But in, in certain cases, it, it also uh, it's a form of strong pressure on the team, on the, on the players. So, I mean, it, it has uh, certain advantages, but... Some disadvantages too. And what do you
4: make of the huge debate that's raging here in Ireland? Which side to support? And it seems most people in Ireland so far, uh, they're backing Italy.
7: I, I, I mean, I've heard the interviews and uh, it is very nice for me to hear that. And I, I think you're right, definitely, because uh, uh, I, I think we, we have, I mean, you have so much in common with with, with our uh, British friends. Uh, but at the same time, we have so much in common uh, with Ireland. And, you know, we are in the same now, uh, European Union, and I always repeat, we, we are at the extreme. Uh, Ireland is, the, the extreme is at the extreme northwest Italy, at the extreme northeast, uh, southeast. But we, we have an incredible uh, history of uh, relationship all over the world from America, to other places where we have our communities have worked and lived, have married, <laughs> whatever you want. So we have a very strong feeling and I think it is real. And also I remember the quarterfinals in Italy, 1990. It was, uh, it was a game, a beautiful game, at the same time it was a beautiful meeting of uh, Irish and Italians in Italy. And I think the, the, oh the spirit God. is the same.
4: All right. Well, whatever the outcome, let's hope that that spirit is what we see in Wembley on Sunday night. Thank you so much for talking to us and may the best team win. You may have seen pictures online of the towering
1: structures made of hundreds and hundreds of pallets dotted across different loyalist and unionist areas of Northern Ireland. People in these communities have been planning and building these for weeks and this weekend they'll go up in flames for the traditional 11th night. The bonfires mark the beginning of the 12th of July celebrations on Monday. They've already attracted considerable controversy, especially one at a sensitive interface in North Belfast. Our reporter Laura Hogan is in Belfast for us this morning Laura, the traditional parades they're going to look a little different this year
8: Yes, good morning, Mary. I'm here on the Ormo Road in South Belfast this morning. Right now, it's the usual sights and sounds of the Friday morning commute, but on Monday, this road will be the site of just one of more than 500 12th of July parades scheduled to take place across Northern Ireland. This long held tradition is the highlight of the calendar for many in the Unionist and Loyalist communities here, and like so many other events, the 12th of July parades were cancelled last year because of COVID. But this year, they're back on a smaller scale. I went to the Museum of Orange Heritage in Belfast to speak to Mervyn Gibson, the Grand Secretary of the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland, to talk about how parades this year will work and to find out more about another tradition at this time of year, bonfires.
6: This year, even though it's rising at the minute, we've consulted the health service and everyone else, and we'll have numbers out in the street, but not the usual hundreds of thousands in one place. What's happened, is normally 18 demonstrations or parades in Northern Ireland, and the crowd's spread around them all, maybe half a million people on the street. Uh, but this year we didn't want to bring that number together at any one location. Uh, so we spread it around 100 parades and there'll be smaller parades so the crowds can Still enjoy the traditional 12th tunes and sounds and sights, uh, but it'll be safer for everyone concerned.
8: We've heard that there seems to be bigger bonfires, there seems to be more flags this year than usual. Is that something you would agree with?
6: Absolutely. I want to see the, the, 12th, the country decorated for the 12th of July, as many flags and festivities as possible. Uh, and I think there has been a bit of a boost because people feel a bit under threat. We have Sinn Féin pushing for a border poll, with Sinn Féin talking about our place in United Ireland, which we don't want a place in United Ireland. Uh, we have the protocol, we legacy issues, so there are political issues in the background there. And if people feel threatened, I feel they turn to their traditions and they're increased. But we'd expected a big year anyway because it's our centenary year, but with certainly more uh, flags up, there's certainly more orange arches around the countryside.
1: Mervin Gibson there, the Grand Secretary of the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland. Laura, will you just tell us a little bit more about this debate over bonfires?
8: Yes, there are more than 230 bonfires planned for this weekend, the vast majority of which will be lit on the traditional 11th night on Sunday. Now these bonfires can cause tension however, particularly if they're located close to a Nationalist area. One such bonfire this year is located on Adam Street in the Loyalist Tigers Bay area of North Belfast, which is close to an interface with the Nationalist New Lodge. Now, there have been calls for its removal, but today that bonfire is still standing. The DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson visited the site last evening and he said it should remain. Meanwhile Infrastructure Minister Nicola Mallon has also said that this bonfire cannot proceed as it's in a sensitive interface area between both communities and it's also been built on land owned by her department and the PSNI Chief Constable Simon Byrne has also said that this bonfire is one of the most contentious in Northern Ireland. So here's what Northern Ireland's First Minister Paul Given had to say on the matter.
6: In respect of the Adams Street bonfire, I know that my colleagues in North Belfast have engaged extensively over the past two weeks to reduce any tension, certainly within Tigers Bay, uh, and there's very effective work that they have done so that there isn't inappropriate material on what is a small bonfire, um, and obviously they're seeking to manage those tensions. I do think that nationalist representatives um, should be dialing down the rhetoric. They need to show better leadership. Um, on this particular issue. Um, What we want to see is a managed solution to this um, so that we can get through the 11th night. And I would make just a a wide appeal um, that people should celebrate their culture but do so in a respectful manner. A
1: small bonfire, Paul Givens said there, Laura. We have seen the pictures. Just give us some idea of the size of some of these bonfires.
8: Yes, well certainly the bonfires range dramatically in size and height from area to area. Some are much smaller, the kind you might expect around Halloween, but others are towering feats of engineering, stacks upon stacks of wooden pallets that bonfire builders have been planning and constructing for weeks, if not months now. The one in Tiger's Base, certainly it's probably fair to say, is not as imposing as a structure as others like the one perhaps at Craigie Hill in that area of Belfast at the moment. But nevertheless, big or small, this one is causing some tension and here's what the Deputy First Minister Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill had to say. It's hard to believe, like it's actually absurd. That in this day and age that residents are living with this day
9: and night for months now. They've been living with uh, music being played right into the the wee hours of the morning. They're living in in fear of both their their families and their properties being damaged. And i witnessed some of the properties um, that were damaged with golf balls and other masonry. I actually visited homes this week who are caged in. These families are actually caged in. Um, because they live in an interface area, that's not acceptable and it's not a way to live for for anybody. There shouldn't be a bonfire in an interface area for a start. You would question the motivation as to why it would be there. It deliberately
8: is designed, I think, to heighten tensions. So um, I would ask that the bonfire would be removed. Well, this uh, I'm joined now, sorry, by SDB, SDLP MLA for South Belfast, Matthew O'Toole. Matthew, this contentious bonfire we've just been hearing about, it's built on land owned by the Department of Infrastructure here. Its Minister Nicola Mallon is your party colleague and has called for its removal. Is there any update on the situation today?
10: Well, uh, I, Nicola, uh, as Minister, has been seeking the removal and partnership with the police on um, moving the contentious bonfire at Adam Street. As you said, is very close to an interface area, which is an issue. Um, we saw trouble at interface areas earlier this year, so I think the responsible thing to do would be to move that to somewhere else. Not that the bonfire shouldn't happen, but that it should happen in another part of that area. Uh, I hope there is progress on that, and, and we may hear more about that later today.
8: Are there issues around flags this year? Have your uh, constituents here in South Belfast been contacting you about this issue where flags are appearing maybe in areas that they never were before and maybe even that they're bigger this year?
10: Yes, definitely. Um, uh, This time of year is always the time of year in in this part of the world, as as listeners will know, when these questions of identity and people putting up flags uh, become sharpest. uh, in this part of the island, and they, um, uh, th- that has been the case this year. But there has been an increase, uh, a noticeable increase, in areas that are genuinely shared. They're mixed. They're not just integrated people or, um you know, they're not aware of, of the religious or political composition of their neighbourhood because it doesn't matter because it's a shared area. Um, there's one example fairly close to here, a suburban part of my constituency, which is really proud of its uh, shared mixed ethos. And flags not just national flags not just the union flag but the um, paramilitary flags and 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 uh, parachute regiment flags the day after the decision not to prosecute soldier f in the bloody sunday trial uh, went up and that caused real frustration and anguish in, in, among those uh, communities and not just people of one particular persuasion politically but across the whole community so we need an agreed approach to managing these issues and we need a, a, a proper way to, for communities to hold them to account
8: And how would you characterise the mood as we head into this 12th weekend overall?
10: Well I think um, uh, people here are, there's a degree of uh, a desire to get through the next few days and ensure that there is not a repeat of scenes earlier in this year. It's also worth saying, you know, that People here have been uh, enjoying the summer. They've been enjoying uh, us moving out of COVID restrictions. We aren't a, 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 like a, a society under siege. as lots of people from all over the island who've traveled to Belfast in recent weeks have seen. But there is a degree of uh, apprehension uh, and a desire to get through the next few days calmly and safely and people who want to celebrate and have a good time uh, should be allowed to do that in the space, but, but everyone else should be uh, allowed to stay safe.
8: And finally, then, if I can, on a different topic, a further relaxation of public health measures on the 26th of July has been announced for Northern Ireland. Is this the right way to go at this point, given that we're seeing a a marked increase in the number of COVID-19 cases here?
10: Well, clearly it's important to be cautious as we approach these things. It it, it is true to say that a um, further easing is pencilled in for that date. Obviously, the executive will be able to revisit that in the weeks ahead as that time, as that becomes closer. we are seeing um, uh, the positive effects of the vaccine, um, but it's also true to say that the Delta variant is increasing. It's all over this island now, candidly, and we need to be very cautious about that. So we need to revisit this if there's if there are any issues. But, um, but as I said, there will be an opportunity to, to revisit it.
8: Very good, Matthew. Thank you for joining us this morning. That's it from us in Belfast, Mary, as we head into this 12th of July weekend.
1: Laura Hogan in Belfast.
11: Minister Josefa Madigan has told the Dáil that she is a survivor of sexual assault. The Minister of State, with responsibility for special education and inclusion, was speaking during statements on action to tackle sexual, domestic and gender-based violence. The Fine Gael politician said that while the 36 women TDs and 18 senators may disagree on various issues, All are part of what she called the unfinished democracy that is Ireland when it comes to the representation and treatment of women.
9: I'm old enough to know that there are very few women my age who have not been subjected to some form of sexual assault in their respective lifetimes. And I know this because I'm one of them. It won't come as a surprise to those of us of a similar age who have suffered this trauma. And sometimes we have suffered it more than once. It was and is a lot more common than many believe and I always take statistics that I read with a pinch of salt. Most victims do not report their crimes. There are many reasons for this. Shame, a fear of judgment and a desire to forget are among the reasons and it shouldn't be this way. And it is, as the Taoiseach said earlier, a form of a hidden abuse. Um, But it's important to say that not all abuse is continuous. There can be isolated incidents uh, that can be just as damaging either at home uh, or outside the home. And no doubt there's someone watching this speech live or reading it later somewhere near to you at this very moment in time in a town, a public space, an office, a street, or a home where some form of sexual assault or violation is taking place. And the Me Too movements, the Reclaim the Night movement after the Sarah Everard murder in London, and the social media support for Sarah Grace after the brutal savage attack she suffered in Dublin have highlighted even more so how vulnerable we can be as women. The scary part about sexual assault in particular is that it is not always the random monster in the middle of the night, but often a friend or a spouse or an acquaintance or someone you know. It is a corrosive blight on female safety and morale. You know too well that many of the 36 women TDs and 18 Senators may disagree in terms of ideology and policy but on a completely personal and human level we will all agree on one thing, we are all very much a part of the unfinished democracy that is Ireland when it comes to the representation and treatment of women. How much we decide to share is purely a personal decision, but I know that I'm surrounded in this house by remarkable, talented, strong women who are all doing their best to bring about a fair and compassionate Ireland, regardless of what challenges
11: we may each have faced. Minister Josefa Madigan speaking in the Dáil last night. Nolene Blackwell is the Director of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. She's with us in studio this morning. How significant do you think that statement was? It's a very important
12: statement, Rachel, because what it is doing is having one of our leaders in the country recognise um, publicly and in a, in a very personal way uh, that this is an issue that's a huge problem in our country. First of all, that it's a problem, but also recognising that it has a personal impact and that so much of it goes unnoticed and unknown, partly because it was hidden, as both Minister Madigan and the Taoiseach said, but also because it it, it happens to people by somebody else that's often known to them. And this is One of the things, I suppose, working in the area against sexual violence, working against domestic violence, we know about this. Like the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is there over 40 years. And we absolutely understand that you can put the laws in place and they're needed. You can put the help in place and it's needed. But for as long as there isn't this kind of mutual effort and mutual understanding by the whole of our society, that it might have been all right once upon a time to treat somebody else as proper to abuse them just because of their gender or just because you could, that it isn't... Until we get to the point where that's a common understanding, we won't be able to properly address the issue of sexual violence, including sexual abuse,
11: including rape, including sexual harassment, all the ways in which people are hurt. Does she have a particular point when she talks about women of her age, women in their 40s or older, who may now look back on things that happened when they were younger and realise that the impact of, of, of what happened that it's still festering away and it might only be now that they're fully realising the importance the significance of what was done to them That that
12: might well be the case because certainly we find people we run the national 24 hour helpline in, from Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and we know people who will phone up that helpline and literally won't be able to put a label mm-hmm. on the bad thing that they know happened them It's partly that It's also and a whole lot of other things though It is also the truth that there was nobody very much listening um a few years ago in fact the the movements the me too that she mentions all of those movements have made a difference to 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 speaking to speaking about it because you could have spoken about it maybe 20 years ago but who would listen who would not tell you, you were a troublemaker, go away, and this was a good person and you didn't want to ruin yeah, their prospects. Or, or
11: else, that, Asher, that happened to all of us, you that just hap- have to get over
12: it. Yeah, exactly. And people did find ways around it as well. So for younger people, we do notice that they are far less tolerant. Uh, particularly young women are less tolerant where they can be and where they get social support. But for but for people who are no longer in their 20s, um, then for, for those people, there was no tolerance of hearing it and what is going to be really important out of this is that people recognise Minister Madigan was speaking out of her own experience. She also spoke about that coalition of women. She spoke about the fact that although it impacts people of all genders it disproportionately affects women and it does because that's the way the genders were brought up in their boxed in stereotypes which affect everybody and until we can have that wider conversation Conversation that she is helping to make happen. Uh, that government, other government initiatives are helping to make happen, but that's going to take all of us. Those of us who work in the area well need to put another push on to try and build that place where we can talk about these things. Where, you know, sometimes people mean to abuse without doubt but sometimes you can just see people have never thought about the fact that they're abusing somebody else and that it has a traumatic impact on that other person and again Mr. Madigan used that phrase. So this as a point in time is important but we need to have one of these every day until such time it is no longer a matter for Morning Ireland when somebody speaks about this because it is recognised and there are are actually solutions because she is she was talking in the context of the citizens assembly which recognized gender-based violence as a, an impediment to gender equality and that and that the recommendations that that assembly made around ending sexual violence need to be brought in need to be implemented and fast.
11: Is it easier for younger women to talk or are they facing different pressures?
12: Oh, yeah. Women, younger women are facing very different pressures. Uh, there is there is a whole lot of other things uh, that make their lives very, very hard. Um, uh, among, well, yeah, amongst the things that make it very hard is the Internet and social media and the pressures around social media, but also the pressures around pornography and what people are learning about what, what sexual experience should look like as a younger person in the absence of good solid uh, consistent education for young people along the way. So they have all of that as well. But they do have this counterbalance that where steps are taken, and our third level colleges are certainly doing a lot now. It's moving into second level, but certainly at third level uh, they're doing a lot. Um, to, where, where there is a counterbalance, where there's a counter argument, they are learning about their right to uh, be to engage of course in all the valuable and fun experiences that young people have as they're growing up but in a safe and a consensual way Mm -hmm. so it is this recognition by all of our society it's not enough that young people know it they actually have to be given the tools and the filters but it's also necessary that their parents uh, are listening carefully that 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 Minister Madigan and nobody today or any other day and nobody who discloses the fact that this has happened, that they are not vilified, that they're not asked in what way it was their fault, that that bigger piece of work around ensuring we have the conversations and that we're not afraid to have conversations about because it's going to take a change in the stereotypes we were all brought up in to to make uh, to make it a safer society so that you don't have to say it could be in my house it could be my friend it could be my workmate you know these are the, these are the places we could stop it with a better social attitude
11: Nolene Blackwell thank you for joining us this morning before we leave this I should give you the number for the Dublin Rape Crisis Helpline it's one 800 that's one 800 8888 there are of course lots of other numbers lots of other organisations and you can get those numbers at www.rte.ie forward slash helplines that's rte .ie forward slash helplines.
0: COVID-19 has had a disproportionate and potentially devastating long-term impact on the health and well-being of the traveller community. That's according to the Galway Traveller Movement, which says that many travellers are living in substandard and overcrowded conditions. In a report published today, they have found it almost impossible to self-isolate, they say, if travellers get the virus. Well, in a moment, we'll talk to Joanna Corcoran from the Galway Traveller Movement. But first, our reporter Daniel Quinn has been speaking to Nora Mongan, who is based in Galway City.
13: The fear of COVID was at the very beginning as you know yourself and even now was extremely frightening to say the least so we stayed at home as much as possible uh, washing our hands, sanitation when we went out or whatever but against all odds to be honest with you I contracted COVID and um, the guilt alone um, thinking that I may have brought it back to my own family um, was I suppose millions of people feel this over the world. But for you, for me, myself, it's it, the shock and the fear towards my, for my family. And um, now, as I said, I hadn't been visiting anyone, so I didn't feel, but it was the shock that I brought it into my own home, unintentionally, of course. And we were very lucky to have a roof over our heads that we had room to isolate and quarantine. My family members, what they did, they picked up groceries for us and GTM, were brilliant Galway Traveller movement and the public health nurses were brilliant uh, around advice and support. Um, You have a right to your cultural beliefs and you have a right to live your life that you want to live it. So it's not, I don't think it's really a hard thing to give people the right to live in in proper accommodation, basic amenities. If a pandemic doesn't change things for people living in substandard housing or living conditions, I don't know what to say, to be honest with you.
0: That's Nora Mongan there. Well, Joanna Corcoran is with the Galway Traveller Movement. She joins us now. Joanna, thanks for taking our call this morning. That disproportionate effect of COVID on the traveller community. What was the extent of it in terms of infections, in terms of deaths?
14: Well, we, to be honest, we don't have um, actual statistics uh, about the number of deaths um, or people who travellers who caught um, COVID. But we do know that nas- through national surveys and uh, research, that travellers were two times more likely to actually get COVID. And so then the uh, one of the ongoing effects from that in our research and the issue that we're highlighting is the fact that. If we're two times more likely to get it, and then in the conditions that travellers are expected to be living in, and um, the experiences travellers have had, is that we're, like, we're, as Nora said, there's overcrowding, and there's um, she she was luckily l- lucky enough not to have this situation, but there's overcrowding, and there's lack of sanitary um, services in some homes. So if we're two times more likely to get it. Then it's more likely to spread within the community, so that it has a huge impact that way.
0: Well, that's the thing in terms of the conditions, because even the most basic of things that we were told throughout: wash your hands. For many travellers, they couldn't because there's no running water in in some of their homes.
14: Oh, well, that's that's absolutely correct. And it, um, we say like that there was a whole thing of look like, the amplified exist, the amplified um, effect that actually happen with traveller community is because the existing issues um, in areas where the traveller community have been previously experiencing inequalities, for example, um, in the home accommodation, inadequate accommodation, inadequate sanitary sanitary essentials, like being able to access water, being able to access um, uh, electricity clean home environment it just it wasn't happening so that then really um, affected like it really amplified the issues It helped it make issues worse. And
0: we heard from Nora there acknowledging that she was lucky that she had a roof overhead she was able to self-isolate when she got the virus but what was the extent of overcrowding in in other places where people didn't have that luck?
14: Well, like we're saying, you know, she's lucky she could could self isolate, but we're talking about through years and years of non targets not being met, there are homeless, there's um, overcrowding due to hidden homeless and also due to the lack of um, uh, socially, sorry, (laughs) through the lack of culturally appropriate accommodation um, being provided, that there's overcrowded families, sometimes two to three living in a home where you know, you're living a family to a room, so you're not able to uh, isolate, you're not able to, if someone thinks that they've been in contact with somebody with, with um, COVID or even show slightly the symptoms, and you've got to think sometimes the symptoms are, sim- are very, very similar to a chest infection. Exactly. And that family member is being asked to go into a room on their own for, for up to 10 days isolate until we know for sure because at the beginning of this whole uh, pandemic it was coming some people had to wait two weeks for results to come back it wasn't the next day it wasn't 48 hours later. And Joanna just thinking of the situation
0: here in Dublin for example homeless people people living on the streets were among you know those suspected to be at very high risk of contracting the virus as well and there were outreach teams set up led by DOS. Dr. Austin O'Carroll here, and did amazing work. Was there anything like that put in place for the traveller community?
14: Well, there is. There was the health, uh, traveler health um, unit. There was actual um, a really good. Um, sorry, we had a really, really good response from the the HSC. Um, health side of the uh, uh, to help with traveler, the traveller community okay. um, going out, you know, helping and also Galway Traveller Movement ourselves. We worked with the health, the HSE in responding. We didn't okay. have adequate ha- um, response from the local authorities, though. All right, you know, but, in, in that kind of a
0: way. But but there was some system in place. Look, Joanna, great to talk to you, and thank you for talking to us, Joanna
1: Corcoran there from the Galway Traveller Movement. At- People who are fully vaccinated or COVID immune will receive their EU digital COVID certificates by email or in the post from next Monday. A national call centre is all be also being set up to assist with inquiries. The search is key to facilitating the return of non-essential international travel to EU countries from the 19th of July. And it could also have a role in the reopening of indoor hospitality. The Minister of State at the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and Environment is here in studio. oshin Smith, Good morning. And good morning. You for coming Thank you for into us um, and we will get into the nuts and bolts of this certificate. But at the outset, can you tell us who is actually in charge of this? What department and what minister is responsible for the delivery of this certificate?
3: Well, it's a whole of government project, so um, I'm responsible for issuing these certificates. But I'm getting the data from the Department of Health. The Department of Transport has to help at the ports and the airports. The Department of Justice uh, has produced an app to scan at immigration uh, and Department of Foreign Affairs, of course, is is offering advice on international travel. So there's a lot of different government departments involved. Um, but I'm the person who's th- issuing the certificates. Uh, uh, I,
1: I think you mentioned four government departments and I think the Department of the Taoiseach probably has uh, an involvement They have a coordinating as well. role, that's of a course. Lot, and that's a lot of different departments that all need to be moving in the same direction at yeah, the same time. Yeah. Uh, how much difficulty do you foresee?
3: Uh, I don't foresee difficulty. I think that we're going to be issuing 1.9 million vaccination certificates to people. So if you've had two vaccination doses, uh, you'll be getting, or one uh, Johnson & Johnson dose, if you're fully vaccinated, you'll be receiving your certificates uh, next week, um, starting early next week. And that's so that they're there on time for the 19th of July, which is when the policy is changing in Ireland about international travel. So up to now, um we, we haven't allowed people to, uh, to travel for non-essential purposes. Um, so uh, that's changing on the 19th of July. And from that day onwards, for example, people who haven't been able to visit family members for a long time, uh, people who want to take a short holiday, will be able to do that from the 19th. And they'll be able to travel much more easily than they were before because the COVID cert sort of speeds your, your passage through through the airports.
1: Minister what is it and what will it look like what will people receive and what are they to do with it
3: so what you receive depends uh, you'll get either get an email or you'll get a letter and that depends on how you got your vaccination so if you went to a mass vaccination centre of which there are 40 in the country and you queued up uh, you will get it by email because we got all that data very carefully through the portal um, if you went to a doctor or a pharmacist or a hospital uh, then you'll receive it in the post and it's a sheet of paper um, so uh, one way or another you receive your vaccination cert uh, on paper or on your phone
1: would you accept I mean you're the e-minister you're, you're you're, you're the man with responsibility yeah. for electronic rollout mm-hmm. but you're presiding over a, a paper rollout here and it feels it, it feels very last century to be doing it in this way
3: I think ideally we would email everybody. We would have everyone's correct email address that had been verified. But in fact, um, if you think back to January when we had our vaccines, one of the government policies was we will get these vaccines out as quickly as possible and we won't be delayed by administrative concerns. We won't be delayed by setting up an IT system. We'll just get them out as we get them every week. And we won't go out and say to a hospital, you, uh, you're working in an ICU, we can't we can't give you your, your vaccine beca- until you've filled in, so uh, we've written the computer system or we've got your email address exactly right. So we do have people from the start, a large number of people uh, where we where we took their data on paper or we took it through an earlier version of the computer system, the newer ones, we've got your air code, we've got your PPS number, we have your email address and we have your mobile phone what number. What am
1: I going to do with the email or the piece of paper I receive in the post?
3: Uh, well, this, what you can do is you can use it to travel. So, if you are booking a, a flight away, uh, you can arrive at the airport with this uh, with this piece of can, paper. Can I scan in the it same onto way, my phone? You can, of course. You can scan it on your phone. You can take a photo on your phone. You can use it to go through. Uh, you can also bring as a backup. I, I would recommend to to put it in, in your in your baggage in case your phone runs out of battery or something. And you arrive, and you, it you it means we at the moment we have a very low volume of people going through the airport. And we expect that when we send these out, that a lot of people will think I can now travel and we will have a larger number of people going through the airport. Um, it's to, even though there's a, a small number of people going through the airport at the moment, it's taking a long time to get through because of all the checks and this will speed up that system. And um, so I just want to say to people as well that um, if for any reason you don't have a certificate, Um, For example, if you're not vaccinated or for whatever reason, that you can still travel on your existing documentation. So that hasn't changed. Um, And if you were vaccinated in another country, if there are there are going to be some exceptional cases. I had a woman contact me. She got her first dose in Ireland, her second dose in Portugal. You know, if if you are if you're in one of those categories, if you can show evidence that you've been vaccinated or that you've been tested, you can still travel. So it's not a a prerequisite for travel. You don't have to have a digital COVID cert to travel on Monday week. But it does make it faster. But so you it's just don't hard to say that it is not you, a prerequisite for travel.
1: Would it be fair to say you don't need the digital COVID cert to leave Ireland? But surely no, you, you may no. need it to access your, your EU country of destination. No,
3: you don't. That's exactly what I'm saying. You, If you want to travel, to, if you want to go to Spain or you want, you want to go to France, you don't have to have a digital COVID cert. It makes it faster and easier going through the airport. But if you don't have it, you can still travel on your existing documentation and you get the benefits because something is changing the rules about isolation are being removed across Europe. So up to now, if you went on a short trip to France, it was hardly worth it because you would have to go and isolate for a number of days. And the same in Ireland. So we're removing those rules about isolation. If you arrive with, with, a, uh, with a vaccination or a test cert, you don't have to isolate any within how, how the How are EU. they going
1: to, to check the validity of the cert that you have in your hand?
3: So they, they they scan it. It has a it has a QR code. So it has a barcode on whatever
1: piece so whatever piece of of information you have to prove you've had a vaccination. Mm-hmm. It has to it has to be scanned.
3: So if if you have a digital COVID cert, they will scan it. Yeah. If you have if you don't have that and you if you and you you have you have some proof you've been vaccinated or tested, then it can't be scanned. It's just it's just compared against the name on your passport.
1: So it's compared against the. So what is to stop fake? Pieces of ID getting into the system. How how do you guard against that? So
3: that's been a problem. That's been a problem up to now. The digital COVID cert has a, a barcode on it, which is which which has which has been digitally signed by a government, which cannot be faked. You compare it with the name. It encodes your name within that barcode, and that's that's your proof. Uh, and that gives us a greater that. level of certainty. And it means that we can de restrict, for mm. example, getting rid of the isolation rules because we're sh- we're we're more certain for
1: other documentation.
3: For other documentation, you still have the possibility of that, but that'll be that'll be an, a, a, a diminishing number of people who are travelling on the old documentation Tell as we go into the future. Tell
1: me also about this new national call centre. Um, what is it designed to do?
3: Well, in the same way that when you registered for a vaccine, there were there were uh, occasions when it didn't all work online, you didn't get your call or there was some kind of problem or you got sent to the wrong vaccination centre and you need to be able to call somebody up. And the HSC was able to very quickly set up a, um, a call centre so that you could you could ring and you could get get assistance if something went wrong with the process. And in the same way, the Department of Health has agreed to set up a, a call center, which will take calls from people who are having, for, for any reason, are having difficulty um, uh, uh, or, or have questions about about their COVID cert. I'd also say to people to check gov.ie from today, from this morning. If you go to the gov.ie .ie website, the first link brings you to information about the COVID cert and really a- answers a lot of questions that, that, that anyone might have about this.
1: But for people next week, you're going to start rolling out the email and the post on the COVID cert from next week. That's right. Um, for, for people who perhaps anticipate they should be receiving it, they haven't received it and maybe they're booked to leave the country mm-hmm. on the 19th or even before in some cases, uh, can they phone this call centre to see if they can speed things up? Can that call centre tell them when they'll get their cert?
3: I think the first thing to say is that if if you don't get your cert, if you're planning to travel on the 19th and if you don't get it, for some reason you're not one of the 1.9 million people who gets your cert, perhaps you've moved moved home, move address or you've changed your email address, for example. So if you if you don't get it, you can still travel on your existing documentation. So, you know, the 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 postcard that you get from the vaccination centre that says you're vaccinated, you can still travel. But the reality,
1: Minister, is that people will be worried. People have waited and they won't want to travel without their digital COVID certificate. And so if there are delays, this could this could cause huge problems. And, you know, there have been indications that there could be there will be glitches with this.
3: I think that the vast majority of people will will be okay. I think that there will certainly be uh, cases of of uh, there will certainly be exceptional cases, and the 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 um, the, the gov. website is there to help you. The uh, the call centre uh, will be will be there to help you, and really just want to reassure people that you can travel on your existing documentation if you need to. Everybody has a way out. But so just can, to say that to people. Yeah,
1: but can the call centre? expedite the email for you if you are going to the airport within three hours? Mm-hmm. Can it expedite the delivery by email of your COVID certificate for you if you'd been to one of the centres? So the,
3: the, the purpose of the call centre will be, for example, you've ripped your your your, your, uh, your certificate yeah. in half by accident or you've lost it or something and you need to have a reissue. So a reissue is, is classic. I don't know about three hours uh, um, beforehand. Well,
1: how, how long might it take?
3: In the, like in the worst case scenario, if you have nothing and you haven't been vaccinated, you've got nothing, you've got no digital COVID cert, you can still go around and get, and get, a, get a test in the airport. I'd, I'd say to people that wherever you're traveling, if you look at the website reopen.eu, this is the government's this sorry this is the European Commission's website that contains the very latest information on travel to every single country because every country can put in its own rules so for example if you are going on a, on a trip to Greece and you want to know whether you can go in on an antigen test you need to look up that and see what type of what type of rules they have so you, you, you I would advise people to look at reopen.eu I'm sorry one more thing to say to people is to allow more time at the airport than you would have in the past a lot more time uh, you you I, I would advise people I mean, to
1: I would advise now. people
3: to, to allow plenty of time at the airport, more than they would have in the past. Up to four um, hours? Because I, I, no, I'm not saying that, but I, I, allow, allow more time because, the, um, because there, there, there will be a lot more people in the airport and there's a lot more things to check. Uh, and I guess it's more information for the immigration staff and for the, the, the boarding staff of the carriers uh, who and will are, be checking.
1: Are these certificates now key to the reopening of hospitality? I know the uh, Adrian Cummins from the restaurant group, uh, they want to an agreement by next Tuesday and they want to be open for business on the same day as this vaccine cert goes live on July 19th. Is that doable?
3: Well, these digital COVID certs are designed for international travel. That's what the the plan was all along. Um, And I understand that the Restaurant Association and the the Vintners are meeting today again with the government they met already on Monday. They are um, firming up details of a proposal for how they could reopen their restaurants as soon as possible. I think that they are looking at, at using at reusing these uh, digital certs as uh, as for for entry. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that a proposal is likely to be brought to the cabinet yeah. on Tuesday in that regard, in case any um and in, in case any new laws or regulations are required to uh, to operationalize that that uh, uh, that, uh, that that reopening and they and might be. They, they, might may be. Required. They, they, they may be, depending on what scheme okay. is, is devised. So, the, I mean, the important thing is that any scheme that comes up is supported by the restaurants and the pubs as being workable and reasonable and okay. actually something that they want to use.
1: For now, Minister Oisheen Smith, thank you for coming
4: in to us this morning. It's going to tell you now about another little piece of history that's coming full circle today. Well in fact Sean Rainbird Director of the National Gallery of Ireland is going to tell you about it and this is a very special Jack B Yeats painting. What's the news Sean?
2: Well it's actually a fantastic bit of news. Um, A painting, Bachelors Walk in Memory from 1915 but obviously commemorating an event in 1914 the year before actually in late July is going to be staying at the gallery it's been on loan with us for the last dozen years and with a great deal of help from our own minister Catherine Martin in the department and a group of uh, private supporters and the gallery's own funds we've managed to secure the painting for the national collection which is absolutely fabulous news. Uh,
4: it certainly is and, and I know the Yates are some of your most popular draws in the, in the gallery. Uh, this painting, this particular painting, the Bachelor's Walk one, it has quite a backstory.
2: It's 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 a very it's one of those fascinating backstories. I mean, you know, with art, you sometimes can't make it up. But I think, I suppose, for the for the Yates part of that, um, he didn't commemorate historical events that often. And this is a very very poignant uh, commemoration of something that, that really happened. You know, the response, the, the the number of people who were killed on Bachelor's Walk when um, the, uh, the, the the arms were intercepted at at Hoth and. Then there was um, upheaval and unrest in the city and he comes the next day, he didn't witness it himself, makes some sketches and then makes this wonderful painting, very poignant painting of a woman placing a a rose at the place uh, where those three people, later four died actually, um, were killed by the Scottish borderers panicking at the crowds antagonistic response, as one could assume, and uh, firing a couple of volleys into the crowd and killing people. So it's really saying this is something that you know needs to be commemorated. And the, the curious thing about this whole decade of commemorations, um, the centenary of which we're now commemorating and celebrating in a lot of ways, is that there's very few paintings made at the time. So it, it wasn't really recorded in the history of art. And so this is a very, very special painting for uh, our collection
4: and was once stolen from dunsany castle is that right
2: yes it was also stolen um and actually my 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 predecessor uh, as director m keaveney spotted it and uh, drew it to the attention of uh, police when it sort of uh, came up again and it was returned to the owners and those owners then uh, put it on loan at the gallery for which we're extremely grateful and um, you know, offered his first refusal on acquiring the work. So it's a, a very rounded, um, satisfying ending to an adventurous uh, past for this extraordinary painting.
4: Well, anyone looking for a day trip uh, this summer, it's always a good idea to pop into the National Gallery. But there's even more reasons now. Sean Rainbird, Director of the National Gallery of Ireland. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to us on Morning Ireland. You've been listening to
0: a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.